Good morning, church. It's been a while since I've had an opportunity to be up here in the share with you, and I'm so glad to have this opportunity today. Um, over the last couple of weeks, I have been uh, studying what is uh, known throughout church history as the seven deadly sins. Um, are all you familiar with the seven deadly sins? Yeah? What, what, what are some of them? Just yell it out if you know it. There's no prize or anything. Yell out. What, what's, a, what's one of the seven deadly sins? Pride? Sloth? Envy? Very good. You guys got this, right? There's gluttony, lust, greed, sloth, wrath, pride, envy. And, and those are the seven deadly sins. And, and what I want to suggest to you is that if you examine the list of the seven deadly sins, that many of the sins, like, like lust and, and, and gluttony, greed, even sloth, well, well, would you agree with me that they contain some element of fun? Right? They do. I mean, for example, think about this deadly sin of gluttony. You know, it's one of my personal favorites, I confess to that. Uh, let me ask a question. How many of you are heading for the Chinese buffet today after lunch? Right? Okay. Right. Um, you know, but gluttony, what it, it, it kind of suggests a party, right? You know, you think about, you know, I can't believe how much I ate at Thanksgiving. You know, not only did I eat two heaping plates of turkey and stuffing and vegetables and potatoes, but I probably ate half a pie, right? It's a party. You know, people love talking about the food that they've eaten. You know, in fact, uh, I, I don't know when this occurred, but, it, but you know, I, I, I've noticed that we actually have this class of people who self-identify as foodies. Foodies, right? These are people who embrace their gluttony. Um, you, know, I, I, you know, like I say, so many of these so-called dev seven deadly sins, they contain some element of fun in them. I mean, certainly lust does. And, and, and I would suggest that lust along with greed is what drives a, a lot of American culture. You know, think about the most popular TV shows, movies, magazines, the music business itself. You know, there's companies that, that all they do is, you know, market consumerism, okay? That's lust. It's greed. And, and, and lust and greed, I, I, I would suggest that they are widely admired in our culture. You know, you, you, we hear things like, you know, well, that guy must be really smart. After all, he has an enormous yacht. He has, you know, houses. He has, you know, hundreds of beautiful women. He's a billionaire. You know, he must be a genius. See, we admire that, that lust, that greed. Um, we even turn the deadly sin of sloth into, like, someone who, who, who can find the best vacation spot, you know, where you can, like, lay out on the beach in, you know, one of those white terry cloth robes with one of those drinks with the little umbrella, right? Sloth. You know, we, we, in, in our culture today, we embrace that. Well, back in, in, in 1978, there was, uh, this guy's name was Henry Farley, and he wrote this wonderful little book called The Deadly Sins Today, and that's kind of where my study started. And in this book, one of the things that he does is he contrasts the sin of envy with the other sins. Listen to what he says about envy. He says, it has been said that envy is the one deadly sin to which no one readily confesses. It seems to be the nastiest, the grimmest, the meanest, 
sneering, sly, vicious. The face of envy is never lovely. It is never even faintly pleasant. Although all the deadly sins are morbid and self-destroying, most of the others provide at least some gratification in the early stages. But there is no gratification in envy. Nothing. Nothing it can ever enjoy. It, its appetite never ceases, yet its only satisfaction is endless self-torment. It has the ugliness of a trapped rat that has gnawed its own feet in its efforts to escape. That's pretty ugly, isn't it? That's a picture of envy, like a trapped rat that has gnawed its own feet off. And envy is the sin that eats you up inside. It's the self-destructive effect of envy is mentioned in many biblical passages. For example, in the fifth chapter of Job, verse 2, we read, For wrath kills a foolish man, but en and envy slays a simple one. Proverbs 14.30 is another one. We read, A sound heart is life to the body, but envy is rottenness to the bones. And friends, we live in this age of envy. You know, I read a really fascinating study again as I was uh, uh, um, studying this out, a, a study of social media. And listen to the title of this, Seeing Everyone Else's Highlight Reels, How Facebook Usage is Linked to Depressive Symptoms. Think about this for a second. Isn't that what Facebook and, and Instagram really are? You know, we just watch everyone else's highlight reels. You know, here's our family smiling on the beach, right? Of course, I don't show you the picture of my family arguing in the car on the way to the beach, right? Um, or, 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 you know, I, I don't show you the picture of the bad sunburn that I got at the beach, you know, but instead I show you here's this best picture of my incredibly beautiful family standing in, in perfect sunlight at the beach. Would you agree with me that that's mostly what Facebook and Instagram is, right? There was another study, the University of Michigan did this study that found that people who use Facebook and Instagram, uh, you know, the more they use Facebook and Instagram, the worse they feel about their own lives. You know, heavy social media use amongst young adults is correlated with body image problems, anxiety, depression, and strong feelings of missing out. How many of you have ever heard this, uh, this acronym? Do any of you know what FOMO is? F-O-M-O. I confess, I had to ask my daughter, Lily. Um, she said it stands for fear of missing out, okay? And social media stirs envy in us, and everyone else is, you know, think about it, you know, you, you, you see these pictures, and then everyone, you know, you, you think this, you know, everyone else is having an amazing time except me. Everyone else is happy except me. Everyone else has a boyfriend or a girlfriend or perfect vacations or perfect bodies except me. And yet, and yet, envy is the one sin that is really hard to admit. You know, in fact, I don't know that I've ever heard someone confess that. You know, you know what my problem is? My problem is, well, it's envy. I just hate your success, and I want to knock you down a peg. I have never heard anybody say that. And envy is the one sin that is really hard to detect in ourselves. We don't admit envy, and we find it hard to detect envy. Well, it should be obvious by now that my sermon today uh, is about envy, what it is, 
how we can detect it in ourselves, and how we can become free of envy. And I've called today's sermon, How to Become Free of Envy. Let's bow our heads and pray and ask God for God's blessing on this time. Heavenly Father, we thank you for bringing us here. We thank you, Lord, that uh, we could come together and worship you. And we thank you, Lord, that as we open your word that you promise to speak to us. And that is my prayer, that through this sermon that you will speak to us, that you will point out to us where this sin of envy lives in our lives and that you will show us how to lay it aside for your glory. Father, let everything that we do here be for your glory and let us bless you with it. We pray this in your name for your glory. In the name of your precious son, Jesus. Amen. So our text today, Bill read our text today, which was 1 Samuel 8, 15, or 8, 5, 18, 5 through 11. And we're just going to jump right in. What is envy? That's the first question. What is envy? Well, and I, and, and I want to start out with the negative. I want to start out by telling you what envy is not, okay? Envy is different than jealousy. Envy is not jealousy. Uh, I think oftentimes we use those words interchangeably. But what I want you to see is that they're not the same thing. See, jealousy is being upset because something that you believe is rightfully yours is threatened. So a person can become jealous if the affection of their spouse, which, would be, which should be exclusively theirs, is directed towards somebody else, right? That's jealousy. And of course, we can be mistaken about whether we have the right to something. You know, in the Bible, we read that jealousy can be good or jealousy can be bad. Um, but jealousy, and this is the point I want you to see, is not envy. Jealousy is not envy. You see, we read in the Bible that God is jealous for his people's love and affection, but he's never, he's never envious. Again, see, so envy is always marked by two elements. You know, first, someone is uh, uh, enjoying an event or, or, or a benefit or a blessing that you don't have and you want it, okay? That's the first uh, of the two elements. Um, you know, that, that's, that's the element of desire. And there is desire in envy. You know, I want what you have. Now, that's not necessarily bad, okay? We can admire someone's success and we can, uh, uh, we can want to emulate that success. You know, a person seems to be very close to God and you think, I want to be like that. Or a person seems to know how to pray, how to, how to go before God and, 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 and speak to God. And you, it's, it, we think, I want to be like that. I want to learn to be able to do that. Um, or, or, or perhaps, you know, you know someone who is really successful in their studies in school. You know, I'd like to succeed like that. Or I want to play, learn to play the piano like that person. Or I want to have the relationship with my kids that this person has. You see, that's the first thing. You know, someone has something, a blessing, a benefit, an advantage that you want but you feel you don't have, okay? Now, that's desire. That's desire. It's the second element, though, the second element that makes desire turn into envy. You know, we resent the fact that that person has what we don't. So it's not just that somebody can do something that we can't do. 
or has something that we don't. Envy actually makes us feel diminished or, 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 or and smaller as a result. Envy says that if you're winning, then I must be losing. Envy says that it's a zero-sum game, that there's only so many compliments to go around, and if you're being complimented, that means I'm not going to be. If you're being applauded, that there's less applause for me. If you're successful, then I must be unsuccessful. You see, that's envy. Let me take us back to the scripture for a second. Let's just kind of jump back for... Uh, I want to give you a little bit of background of the text that Bill read for us this morning from 1 Samuel 18. You know, and, and the reason why I think this is such a great text for us to look at, and it's so important that we do that, is because, uh, again, envy is oftentimes very difficult for us to detect in our own lives. So I want to hold before you uh, a, a picture of what envy looks like uh, uh, in the life of someone else. And, and, and we're going to be looking at what envy looked like in, in the life of a man named King Saul. You know, the Bible oftentimes is a mirror that when we hold it up, we see ourselves so much better. When, and when we're looking at King Saul, I hope that we're going to be able to say, you know what, I do that. You know, I sometimes feel that way. And, and, and the idea here, again, is to help us to detect envy in ourselves, okay? Now, let me just give you a little bit more context for our scripture today. The date when this incident takes place is sometime before 1000 B.C. Uh, king Saul was the first king of Israel. And as we know from the scripture, David was, uh, um, ultimately, David was going to be his successor, so we turn to verse 6 and we read this. Now it had happened as they were coming home when David was returning from the slaughter of the Philistine that the women had come out of all the cities of Israel singing and dancing to meet King Saul with tambourines, with joy, and with musical instruments. Now, what they're describing here is a common and historically accurate of the way uh, that celebrations of milita military victories happened in the ancient world. You know, in the ancient celebrations of military victories, the troops would come home from battle and there would be these enormous parades that were oftentimes led by the women who were left behind. You know, and you read about the par these parades, you read about them in a half dozen different places in the Old Testament and in other ancient literature. You know, the women would come out, they'd lead a procession. You know, the women would often be dancing and singing, and there would be women playing tambourines. And in this scripture, we find this, uh, essentially what we find in this scripture, what we find is these women, and essentially what they're singing is this. Saul, Saul, he's okay, but David's better in every way. <laughs> We read in verses 7 through 9. So the women sang as they danced and said, Saul has slain his thousands and David his tens, ten thousands. And then we read on, we read that Saul was very angry and the saying displeased him. And he said, they have ascribed to David ten thousand and to me they have ascribed only thousands. Now what more can he have but the kingdom? So Saul eyed David from that day forward. Now let me ask you, have you ever felt irritable or annoyed because someone else was praised? I mean, I have, I confess that, I have. And you know where that upset, where that upset comes from? It comes from envy, it comes from envy. Because envy is so hard to admit, 
let me give you three ways to detect envy in ourselves. So here's the first way that you can detect envy in yourself. Envy always compares. It compares. You know, we almost always are envious of someone who is very much like us, but perhaps who is a few steps ahead of us in some area. You know, we are almost always envious of a person who is near to us, not someone who is far from away from us. And envy almost always is directed towards someone whose situation in life is nearly the same as ours. I mean, they're in the same business, or, or, or maybe there's somebody in your class, or they have similar giftings, they occupy a similar position. I mean, if you look at the people who we envy, it's almost never people who are radically different than us. I mean, sprinters don't envy swimmers. Um, uh, they envy another sprinter who's a little faster than they are. Musicians don't envy plumbers. They envy other musicians who are perhaps a little more popular than they are. Lawyers envy other lawyers. Politicians envy other politicians. And, and you know, and, and envy doesn't just show up out there in the world, friends. You know, people struggle with envy right here in the church. You know, their singers on the worship team don't typically struggle with the success of accountants or counselors or teachers. So who is it that members of the worship team are going to struggle with if they are uh, uh, going to be envious? Well, they're going to be struggle with other singers, right? Um, why does she get to sing and I don't? Why does he get to lead and I don't? That's envy. Parents. Have you ever felt yourself getting annoyed as you listen to other parents go on and on about how gifted their child is? Why, my child could identify all of the colors on the color wheel when he was just 18 months old. And, and, and not just the primary colors, but the secondary colors as well. Or my child rides her tricycle around the little cul-de-sac and she's not even two years old, but she's so athletic. You know, she was walking at seven months. Now, I would suggest to you, if you're childless, or if you don't have a child of that age, of the other you know, parent's child, that you probably don't struggle with envy over this, that you can thoroughly enjoy learning about this gifted child's latest exploits. You know, my child just finished Dostoevsky's The Brothers Kazimov in the original Russian. It was a little challenging because she had other middle school projects to complete. You know, but if your child's greatest gift is shoving a crayon up their nose and sneezing it out or burping the national anthem, or if your child can't read the Brothers Kazimov in Russian and in fact is struggling to read it all, or if your preschooler can not only not recognize their shapes, but when you give them one, they stick it in their mouth and they try to swallow it, well, you might struggle with envy, right? So the point here is that envy compares. Envy always compares. Here's the second thing. Envy feels self-diminishing. Here's what we read again in verse 8. Then Saul was very angry, and the saying displeased him. And he said, they have ascribed to David ten thousands. And to me, they have ascribed only thousands. Now what more can he have but the kingdom? You know, the thousands that Saul had slain is nothing in his eyes anymore because David was credited with more. 
You know, yeah, I got an A on the exam, but it doesn't feel great because he got an A plus. Or yes, I'm a millionaire, but, but what is that when I'm around a billionaire? Again, envy, envy feels self-diminishing. Envy says, the fact that they are doing well makes me feel small. It makes me feel less than. There was a famous Shakespearean actor. His name was uh, uh, John Gilgood. And he summarized envy so well with these despairing words. Listen to this. He said, when Sir Lawrence Olivier played Hamlet and the critics raved, I wept. See, the success of this other actor made him feel small. Had, had the critics attacked Olivier, Gil Gilgood would have felt great. If Olivier had failed, it would have meant that Gilgood had triumphed. And that's what envy feels like. Have you ever felt good because someone with whom you're secretly competing failed? Have you ever felt good about that? Here's the third thing. Envy destroys. Again, let's go to our scripture. Let's look at verses 10 and verse 17. And it happened on the next day that the distressing spirit from God came upon Saul. And he prophesied inside the house. So David played music with his hand as at other times. But there was a spear in Saul's hand. And Saul cast the spear for he said, I will pin David to the wall. But David escaped his presence twice. Now let's drop down to verse 17. This is very revealing. Then Saul said to David, here is my older daughter, Merab, and I will give her to you as a wife. Only be valiant for me and fight the Lord's battles. For Saul thought, here it is, let my hand not be against him, but let the hand of the Philistines be against him. You see, out of envy, what the scripture tells us is that out of envy, Saul wanted to kill David. And if Saul couldn't kill David, he would delegate the murder to someone else. Envy wants to kill another person. The Bible says that it was out of envy that the Pharisees sought to murder Jesus. It was because of envy that Cain murdered his brother Abel. It was out of envy that the brothers of Joseph were going to murder Joseph. The way envy is manifested so that we really see it in our lives is that envy always, always seeks to destroy the object of our envy. Now, we hopefully don't want to physically murder the person of whom we are envious. Just out of curiosity, is there anybody here who's envious of me? I need to know that before I go and we'll go on. But <laughs> hopefully your envy is such that you don't want to kill that other person, but we do want to make, take them down a peg. So we destroy them. We destroy them through gossip or we destroy them through chipping away at their reputation. We do that ex by explaining away their success, uh, um, uh, by reminding people of their flaws, you know. Uh, yeah, you know what? Her child may be successful. Do you know she drills him every day with flashcards? I'm not sure that that's a good way to, to, to raise a child. You know, I think that children ought to be free to play and, 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 and stuff crayons up their noses and burp the national anthem. In other words, the reason that ch a child is succeeding is because, you know, the, the, the mother may be way too controlling. You know, yeah, you know what? He may be incredibly successful in business, you know, doing way better than you're doing, but it's important for me to point out 
that his child is struggling with drugs. The reason that their church, this church is growing is because they don't care about depth. It's, it's all about hype and light shows and, 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 and marketing. You know, it couldn't be that the church is growing because God is blessing them in some way. You know, we need, the point is that we need to take that other person down a few pegs. We can't help but tell that joke at their expense. You know, let me tell you what this person is really like. My point here, friends, is that envy destroys, that envy destroys families, that it damages relationships, that it undermines workplaces, that envy disrupts friendships. When we become obsessed with someone else's success, our own self-respect suffers. We can neglect or even sabotage our own performance when we envy. You know, envy destroys. You know, researchers tell us that envy can lead to health problems such as infections, cardiovascular diseases, even cancers. Researchers also tell us that there are mental health problems that result from envy, like depression, anxiety, insomnia. They can all result from envy. What we call narcissism is often a function of envy. We're literally self-consumed and self-destroyed by envy, like rats chewing off our own feet. So how do we defeat envy in our lives? Well, it may seem strange to you, and, and, and it certainly does to me, that according to the ancient church leaders, according to our scriptures, the cure for envy is kindness. Kindness. You know, I would have thought that the cure for the envy would have been uh, contentment or, or, or gratitude. I would have thought that the ancient church would have said, listen, if you're envious, take your eyes off of what someone else has or, or, or someone else is and put your eyes on God. Be grateful for what you have. Call to mind God's mercies towards you. And now certainly, let me be clear, that being grateful does help to combat envy. And learning to be content with what God has given us is part of the answer to envy. But there's a deeper wisdom here in the ancient view that if you really want to dig out the roots of envy towards someone, be kind. Show them kindness. Let me ask you a question. How many of you can remember what was said in the commencement speech at your uh, high school or college commencement. Can any of you remember that? Yeah. For the life of me, I confess that I can't recall one word spoken at any of my graduation. I can't recall one word spoken at any of my kids' graduation. I can't even recall who spoke at any of them. And the point here, there's just like a handful of uh, commencement addresses that... that uh, I've ever seen, ever heard, that have been quoted and requoted. You know, most commencement addresses are, are just eminently forgettable. But there was one delivered by an award-winning novelist named George Sanders at Syracuse University about 10 years ago that's worthy of remembering. And it was titled this. Here's what he titled this commencement address, A Failure of Kindness. And in his address to the graduates, he asked this question. He said, looking back, what do I regret? He said, I don't regret being poor from time to time or working terrible jobs like knuckle puller in a slaughterhouse. I don't know what that is. Um, I don't regret the occasional humiliation like playing hockey in front of a big crowd, including in front of a girl I really liked and managing the score on my own goalie while also sending my stick into the crowd, nearly hitting that girl. No, I don't even regret that. 
He said, here's something I do regret, times when I was unkind. And friends, I'm going to tell you that I completely agree with that. That, that really speaks to me. Um, I remember when I was a kid, I remember a girl who lived next door to me for a very brief time when I was probably about 10 or 11 years old. And I don't even recall this girl's name, but I remember that she was short, she was overweight, and she dressed funny. And all the kids on the bus, they, they made fun of her when she got on. And she was such a sad little girl. But you know what? I didn't care. One day she was walking in front of my house, it was winter, and I began throwing snowballs at her. And I made this sad little girl even sadder. Friends, that was 50 years ago. And my cruelty towards her, it still makes me ashamed. I've prayed for this little girl so many times over the years that the Lord would bless her and that uh, uh, wherever she is and that he would heal her of the abuse that she suffered and that God would cause her to flourish in life. And, and looking back, the things that I regret the most were those times in my life when I was unkind, when a sad person was in front of me and I did nothing to relieve their sadness or God forbid, I actually increased their sadness. I want to take you to another scripture. I want to take you to 1 Corinthians 13 for a second. Um, this is the chapter in which the Apostle Paul talks effusively about what love is. And notice what he says in verse 4. He says that love suffers long and is kind. Love does not envy. Love does not parade itself, is not puffed up. Now, I find it fascinating that Paul puts envy and being kind right next to one another. See, kindness is the cure for envy. And it's important to remind ourselves that, as, uh, that an important feature, it's important to remind ourselves that an important feature of 1 Corinthians 13 is that the words used to describe love, they're not nouns, they are verbs. Anybody remember from high school English, what's a verb? Come on, this is an easy one. It's an action word. That's right. Verbs are action words. Okay? Um, so, you know, they are words that describe an action. And there are at least 15 verbs used to describe love. And this means that when Paul says love is this or, or, or love isn't that, he doesn't give us a philosophical definition of love. Paul doesn't say that love is a feeling that you have deep in your heart. Rather, he says love is something we do. Love is an action. And this really helps because, you know, so often I think we feel like, you know, Lord, you tell me to love my neighbor, but, but I don't feel warm towards them. I, I, I don't like the way that their dog is tied up in the yard and barks all day. It, it, it annoys me. I don't, I don't like the car that they have up on blocks in the driveway. I don't like this person at work. They're not pulling their weight. I'm annoyed at my brother-in-law. You know, he's always complaining, always needing something from me. When we read this chapter on love, though, we think, how can I get that loving feeling towards my neighbor or my coworker or my brother-in-law? You know, the love chapter teaches us this, that love is as love does. There's action involved. So again, 1 Corinthians 13, 4. Love suffers long and is, and is kind. Love does not envy. Love does not parade itself and is not puffed up. So 
when Paul is telling us that love is kind, he has turned that into an action, into a verb. Love does kindness to another person. Now, you may not feel warmth towards that guy with you know, the, the, the sign sitting on the curb saying, I'm hungry. But love does kindness, and kindness buys the guy something to eat. There's a seminary professor named Lewis Smedes who calls kindness love's readiness to enhance the life of another person. Isn't that good? The Greek word for kindness is kristotes. In the early church, Father Tertullian, he tells us that the early church, non-Christians, sometimes called Christians Christiani instead of Christiani. Christiani means Christian, but the pagans in this early time, the early Christians, uh, um, but the, the early pagans called Christians Christiani, so that even when people didn't understand what Christian was, they called them kindness people. And early Christians were known as kindness people. I'm going to close with this. Do you know how you can tell that the Holy Spirit is at work in your life, changing your heart, and making you different than you used to be? Well, the way that you do this, you can see this, is that when you recognize that you respond differently to bad news concerning someone who uh, we struggle with or who, we tre who treated us poorly. You know, you find yourself not really happy anymore when you find out that your ex-spouse is doing badly or you're sad to hear that that boss who was utterly unfair to you is now undergoing treatment for cancer. It gives you no pleasure to hear that your old church that you, you, you think was, was terrible is experiencing a mass exodus. If your reaction to bad news regarding someone that you don't like is the same as it has always been, well, what we need to ask is this, is God's kindness in my heart? You know, a kind person doesn't make a sad person sadder. A kind person is saddened by the misfortune of a sad person. You know, David, who saw envied, was a kind person. He wasn't happy when King Saul died. In fact, rather than rejoice in Saul's death, David wept. And friends, that's what Jesus is like. He's so kind that he gets sad at the things that make us happy. Well, how do you know when you've been freed from envy? Paul gives us a certain test in Romans 12, in verse 5, where he writes, So we being many are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. Do you see what this looks like? How we lay aside that envy. Through kindness, we're able to come together. It's the key to us being one body. Have you ever watched someone you really love succeed at something? You know, a dear friend or a spouse. Uh, parents, have you ever watched your kid do really well in sports? You know, they hit the home run, they kick the winning goal, they sing a solo in the school play. Have you ever watched your kids or your grandkids succeed at something? How did you feel when you watched a loved one graduate from school or get married? See, we don't envy them. We rejoice with them. In fact, you enjoy them succeeding perhaps even more than you would if it were you who were succeeding. Friends, have you ever felt that? Sheer joy at watching someone else succeed 
And that's what kindness feels like. And that inner freedom and that pure joy you experience when someone you care about does well. I want to leave you with this. Our prayer this morning is going to be that the Holy Spirit continue to work love and kindness in each of our hearts so that we can be set free from envy. Let us bow our heads and pray. Father, you... Uh, isn't it amazing? <laughs> it always amazes me that you give us everything that we need to live our lives in a way that glorifies you. Father, we recognize that envy is evil, that envy is wicked. But you don't leave us alone with that, Lord. You show us how to defeat that. Father, my prayer for all of my brothers and sisters that hear this word is that they can examine their lives, that they can, they can see where envy has its roots, and that, Lord, you will give them the ability to, uh, through your Holy Spirit, to battle that envy with kindness. Make us people of love. Make us people who uh, glorify you through the way that we love those, through the way that we combat sadness, through the way that we uh, point to you in how we love. Father, I pray that you bless this congregation as we go out amongst the world again, that you make us those people of kindness. And I pray this in your name and for your glory and in the name of your precious son, Jesus. Amen.